Hi, this is Patty with GalaxyCon Talks Comics, and you're about to listen to part one of our two-part interview with Peter David, writer of Stuff. Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics with your hosts, Mike Broder and Patty Hawkins. Join us each week as we talk to some of the biggest names in the comic book industry, both past and present. Make sure to follow us online at GalaxyConTalksComics.com. Hi, Patty. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good, good. Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics. I am your host, Mike Broder, and my co-host, Patty Hawkins. Hello out there in uh, internet land. Patty, I'll let you do the introductions today since you're good friends with these guys. Absolutely, absolutely. Ah, well, where do you even begin? He's a writer of probably about every form of media in his resume. Uh, I could spend 20 minutes going down the credits, but uh, I think the best way is the way he's described himself. Peter David, writer of stuff, and some of that stuff we are going to go into during our time here. Dude, bring him in. And Kathleen, don't forget and Kathleen. Kathleen O'David, his lovely wife, well, my, my, my big sister from another mister. Hello. Hey, guys. Hi. Patty. Why not? We're out of here. Yeah, hey. Over. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. We'll lead with we'll, we'll lead with it. So how are the two of you doing? Well, I have to admit that being confined to the house and working here in my office, as opposed to typical days where I'm confined to the house and working in my office, is pretty much <laughs> Standard. My life hasn't really changed all that much, except I no longer have my bowling league to go out to. I can and I can't work out in the gym. But other than that, it's pretty much unaffected. That's uh, the, the fortunes, the fortunes of war, indeed. That uh, yeah, some of us are able to do this. Like I said, Mike came up with the idea of bringing the convention experience to the internet, which is why we've gotten you here and a lot of other guests. So uh, welcome to our virtual stage. Happy to be here. And speaking of, you know, conventions, you know, you you started going to conventions back in the in the day of the Phil Suling shows in New York. Oh, yes. And probably around 71, 72. And whereabouts uh, the first convention I went to, I think it was it was either 71 or 72. I remember that distinctly because Jack Kirby was a guest and the uh, new gods was pretty much just out there. And I remember going up to Jack and asking him, was the character's name pronounced Dark Side or Dark Seed? <laughs> no, it seemed a viable question. And, yeah. and it's Dark Side. Yeah. I went, okay. But I will always remember sitting at home in Pennsylvania, watching the, the evening news with my dad, and they did they were covering the comic book convention. And my father saw me looking so longingly at the TV screen, and he said, would you like to go? And I looked at him, and I was astounded, and I said, you take me? And he said, sure, why not? I mean, it was a several-hour drive from Pennsylvania to New York, but it wasn't anything, you know, hideous and overwhelming. And the next day, he drove me up there, and I got to meet Jack for the first time. Wow. And your first convention experience is, you know, you, you get to go meet Jack Kirby, so that's, you know, that's not so bad. Not at all. Uh, and for whatever it's worth, uh, for years, I thought it was Dark Seed. So <laughs> I absolutely did. Wasn't well, until I, got, I got the pronunciation from the man. There you go. And it has been long since ratified and canonized. So that 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 argument's been put to bed finally. 
Well, I, I believe the creators should be able to do the pronunciation of the characters. Yes. I mean, I hear people going Raz al Ghul, and I'll go, no, it's Rachel al Ghul. I know this because Denny O'Neill said so. You know, that kind of thing. It's mixed, yes, piddling. I know that because DC Comics told me that because I wrote a letter to them and they sent back a standardized list of frequently asked questions that they had answers to. So Pidlick was like number one on the list. So hang on. So Mix Yes Piddlick? Mix Yes Piddlick. Mix Yes Piddlick. Okay. I still remember I was going to a convention in Oregon and I was approaching, I was with a handler and we were walking towards the convention center. And this kid, he was about 13 years old, comes running up to me, says, is it Bill Sienkiewicz? And I said, no, it's Bill Sienkiewicz. And he goes, and it's Fabian. And I said, it's Fabian. And he said, and it's, is it Submariner? And I said, no, it's Submariner. And at, he said, okay, thanks. And I said, that could go away. I'm about to leave. I say, oh, by the way, a lot of people don't know this. It's pronounced Moon Knigget. <laughs> And he went, what? And I said, the superhero is Moon Knigget. And he said, I thought it was Moon Knight. And I said, ah, you're forgetting that he's Egyptian. And Egyptian <laughs> pronunciation. And he went, wow, that's really interesting. And he goes running away. And my companion says, you are evil. And I said, oh, just wait. Because sure enough, he ran to a group of kids. And he was clearly the messenger. And I could see... When he got to the part about Moon Knight, because the kids are going like this. Yeah, so, you know, never ask me how to pronounce things, because depending upon the mood, I may tell you accurately or screw with you. Well, I will tell you this. When I was running a store uh, during the uh, New Universe days, I did have a kid come in and ask me, did they have the latest issue of Chivistus? I was like, what? Chivistus? You mean justice? No, it's Chavistus because it's got a V. I was like, <gasps> I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna correct a kid who wanted to buy the book. But hey, look, when I was when I was a little kid, when I was like seven or eight years old, I thought the character's name was Akua Man. You know, and I and I told my father, I mentioned this character Akua Man to my father, and he said, "What?" And I said, Akua Man. He said, how do you spell that? And I went, A-Q-U-A. And he said, no, that's Aquaman. And I went, oh, okay, because I, I didn't know the term Aqua. Uh, now these kids, the kids today, they got pronunciation guys. They can go online. They can see it. Oh, all good, too. All these, all, these, all these classic old fan arguments are, are, are moot. Yep, pretty much. <laughs> that's okay. We found more things to be uh, angry about, but... <laughs> <laughs> but enough about Twitter. Let's... Thomas so. Price wants to know if I ever wrote a fourth apropos, a Sir Apropos novel. Yes, I did. It was called Pyramid Schemes. It was published by Crazy Aid Press. And you could go to Amazon, enter Pyramid Schemes, and buy it right now. You were already reading comics and uh, into the whole scene. And I, we all know certainly you were a big Star Trek fan. Yes. I uh, I especially enjoy the, the tale of... Uh, was was Takei your very first one? Yes, I met him at my very first show. I actually had a signed poster of Sulu up on my bedroom door when I was, you know, when I was uh, something, starting when I was like 16 years old. You know, 
if you could have told 16-year-old me that 45 years later I would be at George Takei's wedding, I would have been like, what? So, but yeah, uh, I met George Takei at the first Star Trek when I went to. (laughs) And you, you know, clearly into other science fiction as well. Yes. So you were running the gamut. So what were you? Were you reading Asimov, Heinlein, that kind of stuff? Yes. Exactly. Oh, yeah. I was reading Asimov. I was reading Heinlein. I was reading uh, Ellison, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Pretty much every classic science fiction and fantasy writer you can think of. Fritz Lieber, uh, Robert Bloch. I mean, pretty much everybody. In 1974, you went to the World Science Fiction Convention. Yes. It was, journalist. it was in Washington, D.C. I covered it. My father was a reporter and he was working for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, now defunct. And I covered the convention on behalf of the Evening Bulletin. My father got me press credentials. Nice. Press badge. That's, that helps. That can be very helpful. Yeah. It was interesting because I went to the convention and I was in the press room. Or what was doubling as the press room was really convention central. And I was going over the list of people I wanted to talk to, to do interviews with. And I said I was interested in talking to Rogers, the last name, and one or two other people. And I said, I also like to talk to Harlan Ellison. And at that very moment, a voice shouted, gangway. And this small, this small miniature blur came charging through the room, almost knocked me on my ass as it dashed past. And I said, who the hell was that? And they started laughing, and they said, that was Harlan Ellison. And 40 years later, he was the best man at my wedding. So, you know, with George Decay. With George Decay was at. <laughs> now, did you did you get to talk to Harlan at that show? No. No, I, I did not. He was way too busy. I got to watch him at a screening of a boy and his dog, but uh, I never I never got the chance to interview him then. So when's the first time you got to sit, to meet to actually talk to Harlan? <laughs> the first time I ever spoke to Harlan was okay. This this requires a little bit of setup. I had been attending the San Diego Comic Con and I saw a number of people carrying around a copy of a newly released book, The Essential Ellison. And I said to everybody who I saw carrying, and I said, "Could you have lived without that book?" And every single person said, "No." And I thought, wow, I guess it's really essential. Some months later, Comic uh, Comic Buyer's Guide, the newspaper for whom I wrote, uh, but I digress, asked me and all the other contributors to do Christmas lists. Mm. And I put in my Christmas list that you should get Essential Ellison. And I related my encounters in San Diego. And I said, you really apparently cannot live without this book. So, so that would be a perfect Christmas present. And I come home from work after it comes out and there's a message on my message machine. And it's from Harlan and he is proposing marriage for my having so, you know, visibly promoted Essential Ellison. And I have no idea how he got my phone number. I assume he got it from Maggie Thompson. And uh, he left his phone number, and I called him back, and that's how our friendship started. Wow! And it it blossomed as the years went by. And uh, so this, this this would be the, this would what be the eighties? Yeah, 
Well, it's whenever the essential Ellison came out. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Too bad the, those machines back then you couldn't have kept that. That would have been a that would have been lovely to hear. I, no, no, no. I, I kept it on it was on a little micro oh, recorder. Okay, all right. Uh, yeah, I probably took the micro cassette recorder and stuffed it in my file drawer and put in a new one. I mean <laughs> all right. Probably can't. I, God knows where it is now, and I, I doubt yeah, it's trying to play it. Having the, the the physical mechanism to play some of these things. Uh, you, you send it to me. I got friends in the audio business. I'll, they'll, 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 they'll decipher it. They'll clean it up. They'll digitize it. Get it back to you. Okay. <laughs> Desk drawer. Yeah, really. <laughs> Tile that chest drawer. So uh, when did when did you uh, hook up at uh, Marvel? Uh, like something like around 1980, 1981. What happened was I was hired by Comic Scene to do an article about the direct comic book market. I was actually working in sales at the time for Playboy Paperbacks, uh, which was a really, you know, despite the name of it, was really a very, legit, very legitimate publishing arm. They, we published uh, yeah. top authors like Morgan Llewellyn, um, Ann Tyler, who wrote The Accidental Tourist. I mean, it was a really, yeah. really legitimate outfit. And so Bob Greenberger, who was the editor of Comic Scene at the time, hired me to do an article about the direct sales. And I interviewed all the various direct salespeople. And Carol at the time was the assistant direct sales manager to Mike Friedrich. And I came in and I interviewed Carol. And we talked for something like three hours. We talked until our voices were hoarse. And at the end of it, Carol said to me, how are you able to get off work? Because I come into interview around three o'clock in the afternoon. And she said, how are you able to get off work to come to this interview? And I said, well, Playboy Paperbacks is being sold, which it was. And everyone is going to be fired and we're all going to be out of work in about a month. So I told my boss that I have an interview and he kind of assumed there was a job interview. And said, okay, good luck. And she said, you're going to be out of the job? And I said, yeah. And she says, I'm being promoted to direct sales manager in a couple of weeks. And I'm going to need an assistant. Tell me about yourself. Which I did. And she said, I'd like to have you come back for a more formal interview. And I contacted Bob Greenberger and told him, the situation, and I said, would this and it would be inappropriate for me to now write the article. And he said, can you write an article without overly favoring Marvel? I said, sure, that's not a problem. And he said, okay, write the article and just get it into me before you go in for the interview. And I said, fine, which is exactly what I did. And I came back a couple of weeks later, and I was wearing my suit. And Carol is sitting behind her desk, putting together a model kit. And I said, is that a pterodactyl? And she says, no, no, it's Rodan. And she proceeded to tell me all about Rodan. And as she did so, she reached across her desk to pick up a model piece. And she was on a wheeled chair, like like the one the Kathleen's. No, the, the one you're on. Like the one I'm on. I'm and she reached, she reached across the desk and the chair flew out from under her and she hit the floor and she climbed back up to the chair, sat there, put her hands like that and said, so why do you want to work in Marvel Comics? <laughs> and given the ludicrousness of the situation, I said, do you see this suit? This is a winter suit. 
And it is the only suit I own. And if I have to go for more interviews next month, I'm going to have to buy a summer suit because I can't wear this winter suit in the summer. Yeah. And I really don't want to have to go buy another suit. And she said, that's a great answer. Oh, let me introduce you to Ed Shukin. And, wow. and that's how my career in comic books started. So you now you're in the wild, wild west of comic book retail. Right? Right. You're dealing with guys who don't have cash registers. You're dealing yeah. with, you know, bookstores that, you know, are selling some comics on the side. Yeah. You're dealing with fans who had collected that are, you know, and, and this is, uh, you know, I think it's, you probably had like, you know, God knows how many distributors suing was distributing. Uh, um, when we had our maximum, if I'm recalling correctly, I think our maximum was 23. We yeah. had our baseline was about 18. Eventually, of course, all of them went away with the exception of Diamond. So the industry became what was the one thing Carol never wanted it to be, which is a monopoly. But yeah, at the time, when I started, we had 18 and we expanded it to 23. But you guys really were there at the, you know, the, the cusp of, you know, the industry growing up and. Oh, yes. And, and being, you know. A, an industry getting off the newsstand. Did you see the uh, newsstands as that they were eventually going to go away like they did? And as the, uh, and that we we're going to end up just really in the direct market. We felt that the direct market was the future of comics uh, because it got the comics out there. We did endeavor to expand the line though, beyond the direct sales market. That's what, I mean, Marvel Comics and DC together were the first ones to get comic books into Barnes and Noble, Borders at the time, pretty much. My, my alma mater. Yeah, every major book. Books. Walden Books. Yeah, that's right, Walden Books. Yeah, we, we got them into the bookstores. And I mean, this was before the time of trade paperbacks. Now we're accustomed to going into a Barnes and Noble and seeing an entire massive shelf of graphic novels and trade paperbacks, but they didn't exist <coughs> in the same way that they do now back then. And we managed to actually get comic book spinner racks into the mainstream bookstores as a way of trying to get the comic books in front of additional lines. Because if you just had comic book stores, all you're going to do is recycle the existing audience. Expecting kids to discover comic book only stores is problematic. What you needed to do was get the comic books out into places where the kids would run into them because mom and dad happened to bring them there looking for something else. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to keep them. I mean, if they were seeming less popular in 7-Elevens, we had to get them somewhere else. And bookstores seemed to be the reasonable alternative. I talked to Shooter about this, and he seemed to indicate that the um, the powers that be above him really wanted to saw the, the direct market as a cash cow hmm. and really wanted to pull out of the newsstand, you know, for any various reasons. You know, the returnability, you know, the, the distribution issues they were having, and that you guys all had to fight to hold on to the newsstand as long as you did and to find other methods of getting the books out. Well, if they were trying to pull out the newsstand, that was happening above my pay grade. I mean, Ed Shukin, who was the boss of the, uh, of my department, 
you know, Carol worked under him. He came up through the ranks of ID wholesalers, independent wholesalers. And he was not the slightest bit interested in leaving that behind. He saw the uh, the wholesalers and, and the, uh, the independent distributors as what he called weeder breeders. You know, that they were the ones who, right. who, who let the fans know that comic books existed. I mean, a lot of people didn't know that. I mean, when I was a kid, I found out comic books existed because I would watch every day at 4.30 on Channel 11 the Superman TV series with George Reeves. And if you remember, the announcement said at the end of the show, Superman is based on the character appearing in Superman magazines. And this, of course, was before DVRs and videotape and DVDs and all that stuff. It's the only time that if I wanted to experience a Superman adventure, the only time I could do it was 4.30. The prospect of Superman magazine was very effective to me. This meant I wanted to see an adventure, I could crack the magazine and read it again in my leisure. And indeed, many, many, many years later, I was in a comic book store and this kid wanders in with his mother. And the kid's looking at the comics and the kid says, Mom, look, they have comic books of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, too. Kid did not know that there was a comic book series called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles whence the ser- the TV series had sprung. Yeah. To him, just the TV series. He had no idea that it had come out as a black and white comic book some years earlier and was when it first came out an extremely pricey first issue because they only get 3000 copies of it. Oh yeah. So, and Laird couldn't afford. So, you know, making fans aware that comic book exists is a problem that goes on to this day. I mean, some years ago I was taking my daughter Caroline, who at the time was something like four or five years old to a local playground. And I saw that there were kids who were running around wearing Captain America T-shirts and Spider-Man sneakers and Spider-Man jackets. And I started having conversations with the kid because you're the, when you're a middle-aged man walking up and talking to five-year-old children on a <laughs> You know, who could possibly think there's something wrong there? And I'd say to the kids, do you like Spider-Man? They go, oh, yeah, we love Spider-Man. And I'd say... Do you read the comics? And they look at me like I was out of my mind. And you go, no, we play the video games. We watch the movie. We watch the cartoon series. They would experience Spider-Man in every single way, except the way in which the character was first introduced. Um, When I was that age, if I wanted to experience Spider-Man, I could only read the comic book. Not anymore. You can be a, a fan of comic books and never crack open a comic book. I mean, you, know, you I mean, Avengers makes over a billion dollars, but that's the movies. Do you think that that translates to comic books? No. Well, the, the biggest crime is it's, it's what you pointed out about Superman. At the end of the Superman shows, hey, go, you know, go pick up the magazine, the Superman magazines by, you know, National uh, periodicals. Yeah, they they don't do that for you know the Avengers movies. They don't do that in the Spider-Man cartoons. They don't 
you know, you go, you, you watch Harley Quinn on, on DC, you know, you don't, you don't get a, you don't get an ad to go read the comic in the, uh, in comic stores. And that's CW over half their programming is DC characters. You don't see, you don't see them at the end of star girl going star girl is based on the character appearing in star girl magazines. Why not? No, and, and Sorrow's a great show written by people who created the character for the comics. Yeah. And but you'd never know. No. You'd never know. Yeah. It's like the, the, what was the one Max did? Um, Road to Perdition? Yeah. Yeah, Road to Perdition was a free oh. Oscar nominated. Oh, yeah, yeah. Max's book. Yeah. Right. Based on a comic book. Yeah. Um, oh, did, did you ever hear what happened when Al was, was hired to novelize it? No. no. Oh, yeah. Al Collins was hired to novelize The Road to Perdition. Uh-huh. And the thing was, there was lots of backstory and character stuff that he did not have room to do in the original graphic novel. So he put it all into the novel. And they sent the manuscript off to the movie producers. <laughs> and they came back and said, you have to take out all this extra stuff. And they said, what do you mean we have to take out the extra stuff? And he said, none of this stuff is in the movie. And the publisher said, yeah, but the guy who wrote the novelization wrote the comic book upon which your movie is based. <laughs> so he should know these characters. And they said, we don't care. If it's not in our script, we don't want it in the book. And poor Al had to go through and gut his novelization of Road to Perdition. I really want to read his original. His original original manuscript was 90,000 words. The final version of the manuscript, 55,000 words. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, it Ah, was nuts. That's foul. That is... uh. Well, you know, I always think of what Alan Dean Foster said, which is that If you write a really great novelization of a screenplay, they call you a very talented hack. If you write a very good movie of a novel, they give you an Oscar. Well, Peter, you did write the novelization of Batman Forever. I did. (laughs) Batman Forever. I wrote Battleship. Mm-hmm. I, wrote, I wrote The Return of Swamp Thing. Thank you. Return of Swamp Thing was my first one. And they sent me the screenplay. Back in those days, they sent you the screenplay. Yeah. And I'm reading through the screenplay, and by page 50, I'm bleeding out my eyeball. <laughs> and I finished this thing, and I said, okay, I've got two choices here. I can either just write what she said, and not have my name on this thing, or I need to fix this. And I decided to fix it because I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that as a novelist. I didn't know that you had to give credit, you had to give priority to remaining faithful to the movie. Yeah. And I completely rewrote it. I left out scenes that were just too stupid to live. I fixed the scenes that were necessary for the plot. I completely changed the ending. I wound up using the ending of one issue of something that Alan Moore wrote, uh, the one where he turns himself into an entire mountainside. Yeah. 
And I sent that off to the publisher who sent it off to Michael Usland, the producer of the film. And Michael could have scrapped the entire manuscript. Instead, he read it and said, wow, I wish we'd filmed this. And some months later, when the movie comes out, they're doing a Q, a DC Comics is doing a QA at a convention. And a fan question came up of the return of Swamp Thing. What the hell? <laughs> and Bob Greenberger responded very succinctly with six words. He said, skip the movie, read the book. So, you know, and I, I did, I've done God. <laughs> Over a dozen novelizations. I'd say that was that was quite a sideline for you for uh, for up in the nineties yeah. and d- double odds. Yeah, they seem to have stopped doing novelizations for adults. For adults, I think part of the problem is that with the rise of the internet, I mean, you see, the thing is that novelizations will always come out about six weeks before the movie does. Now, before the internet came out, if you bought the novelization and then read what happened. Okay, you read what happened. In the day and age of the internet, if you put out your novel, if you put out a novelization six weeks before the movie comes out, then five weeks and and six days before your movie comes out, you're going to start seeing complete summarizations of everything <laughs> that happened in your movie going everywhere on the internet. And yep. they will, you know. The producers don't want to blow their movies. Yeah, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan is a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. You know, you read that novelization, which came out, you know, almost two months before the movie. Yeah, you know that Spock dies. Spoiler, yeah. you know, at the end. I I shot myself in the foot by reading the comic novelization of Empire Strikes Back. Oh, jeez. <laughs> Well, with the, with the YA stuff, I what I've noticed is they stopped the movie yes. right before the climax. Yeah, a lot hmm. of them stop right before whatever the last yeah. act is. The first YA novelization I ever read was the one of the first Thor movie. It ended with Thor confronting the Destroyer. It didn't have what happened. It didn't oh, have the really? battling Destroyer. It didn't have the sequence with him fighting Loki. It didn't have any of that stuff. Oh, really? yeah. Oh, Fascinating. Yeah. I was working in the direct sales department when we distributed Return of the Jedi. And Mark Hamill bought it in a comic book store two weeks before the movie was supposed to come out. Mm-hmm. And he read it and immediately called George Lucas and said, this comic book reveals that Luke and Leia are brother and sister. And Lucas had an absolute shit fit. <laughs> and he called Marvel and Carol Kalish comes into my office and says, you need to go around to every comic book store in New York and get them to take the comic down because the on sale date was actually two weeks later. Oh, well, the thing is that we never really paid any attention to the on sale date. Not the retailers when they got the comic books in, they put them right out. Yeah. So our coverage with Lucas was, Hey, our on-sale date was two weeks from now. We can't help it that retailers screwed around with the on-sale date. But Carol said I had to go to every comic book store in New York and tell them to take it down. Oh, my God. Because Mark Hamill lived in New York. 
So I said, okay. And I would go around to the comic book stores and we would have the exact same conversation. I'd say, I, I tell them what it was, and I'd say, I need you to take Return of the Jedi off the rack. He wow. said, but it's my comic book. He put up and sell. And I said, my job is to make sure you take them off the rack. And the retailer would go, and what happens if I then put them up after you walk out? And I said, how would I know that? All I know is that I'll be able to tell my boss I saw him take them off the shelf. And he'd go, okay. He'd reach over, take them off, and put them behind the register. I'd go, thank you. And I'd walk out. And I knew that like five seconds later, they were going to be right back up. But hey, at least I did my job. Did your job. <laughs> I did the job. The funny thing was, Rumors were flying around that 10 people had been fired over this happening. 10 people. Now, keep in mind that at that point, the direct sales department consisted of me, Carol, my assistant, Sandy Schechter, and Fred Bauman, who was our clerk. So that's four, right? <laughs> if they fired Ed Shukin, that would be five. We'd still have five more people, so they would have had to start firing people in subscriptions. <laughs> so, <laughs> in point of fact, nobody was fired over it. We took a black eye over it, and then the movie came out, and it was usually successful. And because this is pre-internet, fortunately enough, yeah, it didn't. It didn't, didn't go that. It far. didn't. No way. I take it back. The newspapers picked up on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Say, it, it got it got out, yeah. but it still wasn't that everybody all at once thing that the internet would have today. I mean, the thing is to me, it was no surprise because I actually predicted it. I wrote a sketch for a convention called Farpoint in which, um, was it an August party? No, you're right. It was August party. It was for a convention called August party. We always wrote sketches that, you know, we're done skits. And I wrote one that had it was set after The Empire Strikes Back. And we had Luke Skywalker waking up in Tatooine. And Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru were there. And he's going, I had the craziest dream. And we had and we had Han and Chewie and Darth Vader and Leia standing there. And he says, and you were in it, Han, and you, Chewie, and you, Dad, and you, too, Sis. And the audience just go, we heard the audience go, Sis? Because this was two years before we yeah. did I? And I had thrown it in just because I thought it would be a good joke. I had no idea I was accurate. <laughs> oh, the funny thing was, when they re-released Empire Strikes Back some years later, I always remember sitting in the audience, and when Leia kisses Luke, everyone in the theater goes, ew. Yeah. And, and they should have told Alan, Dean Foster. Yeah. Before he wrote Splinter in the Mind's Eye. Yeah, that would have been pretty, that would have been pretty good. <laughs> when, I went to see, when I went to see Empire at that, at that uh, re-release, at one point when Luke gets to Bespin, right? When Luke arrives in Bestman, Leia yells, Luke, it's a trap! And I yelled back at the screen, it's a what? And she goes, a trap! And I went, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> it's just awesome. 
<laughs> That's almost as good as your Titanic uh, gag. Yeah, Mike, do you know the Titanic story? I don't. My sister Beth and I went to go see Titanic in our local theater. And this was back in the days when we got times from newspapers. Right. And the newspaper times were wrong. And we got there 20 minutes late. The Titanic was just leaving the dock. And we, so we had no idea what the setup story was. But we figured, well, the Titanic is just leaving the dock. We couldn't have missed too much. So we watched Titanic. And when, then we started seeing the cutaway scenes. And we went, okay, there's obviously a framing device here. And we saw the movie. And then it was done. And I said to Beth, stay here in the beginning. He said, yeah, okay. So we sat there for the next show. We watched the first 20 minutes. We get up to leave. And people were sitting in back of us going, where are you going? And I said, the ship sinks. Why should we sit here? <laughs> they told us it sinks. What is the point of this? And the guy says, yeah, the Titanic sings. I said, I know. I just saw it happen. You know, it's at the bottom of the ocean. And we walk out. And we walk out. And we come out. And there's like a, a ticket taker is there. And he says, usher. an usher. And he says, sir, is there a problem? And now I can speak with my full voice. And I go, yeah, damn right there's a problem. The ship sinks. They give it away in the first 20 minutes. And my sister, playing right along with it, says, well, you saw the commercials. And I said, yeah, but I figured Cameron would pull some sort of save. <laughs> I didn't think the ship was actually going to sing. Why should I sit there and watch a three-hour movie where they give the ending away in the first 20 minutes? And the ticket taker's like, what? <laughs> and he says, Sir, it's the Titanic. Everyone knows it sinks. And I said, of course everyone knows. They just saw it in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> and I said, I turned and I said, I'm never letting you pick another movie. And I turned it out there. Now, Harlan Ellison later retold that story. More than once. More than once, except he said it in Times Square. This was actually out in, in Long Island. He said it in Times Square in his, his version. No, nothing's like God, Times Square. And in his version, I almost set out for race riot. You know, now, <laughs> why Harlan decided to make it much more insane than it really was. Oh, and I that I was there. Idea. Oh, and then you were there. Yeah. Yeah. Beth became Kathleen in that time. God. But, uh, yeah. Because we all know there's no love lost between Harlan and uh, Mr. Cameron. <laughs> well, that's certainly true. Yeah, that's certainly true. <laughs> so I put it past it all. So you were you were misbehaving, uh, spoiling Star Wars for everybody. Uh, <laughs> what? What? <laughs> How are you working your way to uh, talking to the, the the guys in the editorial level? Say, hey guys, I, I can write. Just saying. I mean, how did that how did that come about? Well, I was pitching to editors every now and then and getting absolutely nowhere because there was no love lost between. <laughs> editorial and direct sales. Most of them didn't like Carol. Since I worked for Carol, they didn't like me. Why didn't they like Carol? Uh... She said no. Yeah, well, she, <laughs> she, she said no. If right. something was a bad idea, she would go, that's a bad idea. Okay. Jim Shooter could do 15 minutes on a Y80 Carol. 
<laughs> now, there was a young editor out in there named Jim Owsley. He was Larry Hama's assistant. Now, Jim was an angry young black man. The reason I say that is because it's very much relevant to this story. Because when people would come into the office, Jim would say, and they'd, they'd say, is Larry here? And if he wasn't, Jim would say, no, he's not here. Can I help you? And they would immediately go, no, and they'd walk out. And Jim assumed it was because he was black. The uh, reason I say this is because he told me this several times. Was it because he was black? I really don't think so. But, you know, if anything about modern day can establish something, it's what the hell do I, a middle-aged white Jew, know about this stuff? Hmm. So this was Jim's view of the world. Now, if I walked in and said, is Larry here? And he said, no, can I help you? I'd say, sure. And I'd ask him whatever it was that I needed because I didn't have a damn out skin color. I had deadlines. <laughs> so, you know, if, if Jim was there and he could answer my question, I was perfectly happy with that. So I made a huge positive impression on Owsley. Flash forward some months later, and Jim has been made a full editor. And he's been given Spider-Man, our flagship character. And people are now coming to him, anxious to talk to him about writing Spider-Man. You know, all the people who Jim felt never had time for him now want his time. Mm -hmm. And he's having a great time blowing them off. In walks Peter David. Now, you have to understand that, again, there was really no interest in hiring me because I was in direct sales. Editorials, logic, these things was very simple. If you were creative, you worked in editorial. If you worked in something other than editorial, you weren't creative. Because if you were creative, you worked in editorial. Nice, simple chain of logic. So in walks Peter David, who no the editor is interested in talking to, I said, I have an idea for a Spider-Man story. Jim says, close the door. And I went, okay. And he goes, sit down. So tell me about your idea for a Spider-Man story. And I said, what would you think if we did an updating of Leopold and Loeb? And he said, who's that? And first I had to explain to him who Leopold and Loeb were, um, which I'm not going to bother to do right now. If you guys want to go on Google, go right ahead. And that became my first Spider-Man story. And Jim really liked it. And he started assigning me some other stories for Spectacular Spider-Man. And then he fired Al Milgram off of Peter Parker and gave me the book, which was a very unpopular move as far as editorial is concerned, because Al is a very sweet guy and everyone in editorial loved Al Milgram. The fact that he was fired off the book to make way for this unimaginative shock from direct sales did not go down very well. With editorial. Indeed, many of them were convinced that I was not writing the stories, that Owsley was heavily rewriting them because no one from direct sales could possibly write stories that were being that well received and be that good. It had to be that Owsley was heavily rewriting them. And a year later, Owsley wound up firing for Spider Man pretty much in order to save his job. Um, Shooter hated me writing the book. The feeling among Shooter, about, among editorial in general and Shooter in specific, 
was that Spider-Man was, oh, there we go, that Spider-Man was not a book that you got assigned to with absolutely no prior experience. He was our flagship character, the guy who you had to work your way up to. You didn't get to just start him, which is why it broke me up when in modern day, people were howling because J.J. Abrams' son was going to be writing a Spider-Man limited series. Modern day fans are going, no, 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 that's a character that you work your way up to, just as editorial was saying about that Peter David schmuck. And he fired fired me off the title. And Carol came into my office shortly after Owsley, and she she had something she needed me to do, but she saw that I was sitting there looking very depressed. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, Owsley just fired me off of Peter Parker. Now, you have to understand that Carol wasn't thrilled about me writing Spectacular Spider-Man either. She really kind of liked that there was a division between editorial and sales. But when she saw how devastated I was, she said, drop whatever you're doing. We're going out to lunch. And she took me out to lunch and spent the entire lunch trying to come up with ways to get me back on Spider-Man because she saw how much it meant to me. And I had to talk to her and tell her, no, no, there's really nothing that we could do. Some months later, Bob Harris walks into my office and he says, I want to talk to you about writing Hulk. And the first thing I said was come back after five o'clock because right now I'm on sales time and I don't want to talk editorial while I'm on sales time because even I knew I had to keep that division. So he came back after five o'clock and he said, would you be interested in writing Hulk? Now I wasn't writing. What the hell? Look, Patty. What the hell? Oh, is, is that, oh, is that, are that the Davids? The Davids? The Davids? Wow. Hi. Hi. <laughs> to our audience, I just let everybody know, these are my housemates, Graham and Emily, and it is through them that I met Peter David a couple of years ago. Graham was a performer at the Adventurers Club at Walt Disney World for several years. I, I actually mentioned that, okay, this is going to be a totally new, this is going to be a totally new story. I'll come back to the Carol Kalen. I'll come back to the Hulk later. I wanted to propose to Kathleen at the Adventurers Club in Disney. The Adventurers Club is now long gone, which I still think is one of the dumbest decisions. But I wanted to propose there at the Adventurers Club. The reason I wanted to do Uh it was that if I proposed to her at at the uh, Magic Castle, that was a three hundred dollar thing which I really didn't want to have to pay 300 bucks. And also, since I was coming off of a broken marriage, my attitude – Caroline, want to step in the camera? Oh, look at you. Yeah. yeah, okay. That's it. That's my daughter, Caroline. Hey, Caroline. My feeling was that marriages were not a thing of fantasy. Marriages were an adventure. So, therefore, I should propose the Adventurers Club. Also, the Adventurers Club had some large puppets. One was named the Colonel. The other was a giant. What was her name? Babylonia. Babylonia was this giant mask. And I wanted to have Babylonia propose to Kathleen on my behalf because Kathleen was a puppeteer. It's a puppeteer. It's a puppeteer. It's a puppeteer. We'll always be a puppeteer. <laughs> and I thought, She's operating Caroline right now. How better to propose to a puppeteer by a writer than have a writer write a proposal for a puppet to read? 
So I contacted the adventure. I con- I contacted Disney and they said, um, well, we, we don't have a program for proposal at the Adventures Club, but here you can speak to Bill Shepard. Bill Shepard was the uh, stage manager. Yes. Yes, that's was correct. Stage manager. So they put me in touch with Bill Shepard and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, it would actually be better if you had the colonel do the proposal in Babylonia. And I said, okay. I wrote the script. And I sent it off to the Adventurers Club. Now, Graham, you told me that you guys got the script, right? That you heard it was from Peter David, and you wondered, is it me? Yes, is it the Peter David? Yes. And lo and behold, it was. So Bill told me that I had to make contact when I arrived with a guy guy named Fletcher Hodges. Fletcher Hodges. He mm-hmm. said he'll be easy to spot. He'll be wearing a pith helmet and a grass skirt. And I went, okay. <laughs> and we arrive at the Adventurers Club, and Graham is standing outside. Graham, why were you outside? I I was well. I was looking for you for one thing. Yeah. Uh, they said you were coming, and we we often worked out in front of the club trying to get people in anyway. Okay, um, but but I was I was looking for you. So Graham accompanies us, and he greets us, escorts us in, and I said to him in a low voice, "Hold on." I said, "My name is Peter." Bill Shepard said I should talk to you, and Graham said, "Yes, I know everything's prepared," and I was really relieved about that. And I said, Can you "Tell me where the men's room is," which you know I didn't really have to know because I knew where it was. Uh-huh. And Graham says, "Why? I'll show. I'll take you there myself." Which got an extremely strange look from Gwen. My <laughs> the hell's up with that? Yeah, it's like so, he doesn't know where the restroom is. Yeah, there's we, something wrong. Yeah. Oh, she wanted to know why he was so anxious to accompany me to the restroom. <laughs> that was what she was wondering. It is a pith helmet. So. Go downstairs, and Graham escorts me through a door that is cast only. And the first thing he says, Graham, do you remember the first thing you said? Uh, I said, uh, first of all, we're all fans. You uh, said, my name is Graham Murphy, yeah. and I'm a huge fan of your work, and indeed, everyone here yeah. <laughs> yeah. is a fan. And I have never been so relieved to be surrounded by fans. And he said, he told me what the setup was going to be, that we were going to Go, they were going to do the radio show in the library. Uh-huh. And then we were going to come out and the colonel was going to come to life and do the script. Mm-hmm. And indeed we went in and the girls thought that the, uh, the show in the library was really hysterical. And then we go out and the colonel comes to life and starts interacting with Kathleen. Now, the little wrinkle in this was that my sister Beth and her husband decided to go down to Disney World at the exact same time that we were there. And she, oh, you didn't know this, Graham? I, I guess I'd forgotten. And she and Kathleen arranged that they were going to meet at the Adventurers Club to surprise me. <laughs> so we now have two surprises going on. At the same time, in which Kathleen is the victim of one and the co-conspirator of another. 
Uh, Colonel is doing my script and I'm waiting for my cue, which is I'm going to pull out the engagement ring. And suddenly a voice behind me says, Hey, aren't you Peter David? I'm a huge fan. And I'm Oh Christ, not now. (laughs) And it's my sister. And standing there grinning. And now all of a sudden my attention is split because if I'm looking at her, instead of standing there with the ring, I'm going to throw everything out of whack. So I grab her by the side of the head. I pull her over. (laughs) Just listen. And I release her and turn back to Kathleen just as the colonel gets to the point where he says, you know, he has something for you, dear. He has an engagement ring. And I pull out the engagement ring. And everyone in the Adventurers Club suddenly realizes something genuine is mm-hmm. happening. And the entire place burst into applause. And he finished the thing where he says, he says, um, you know, he wants to, Peter wants to know if you will become his husband, his wife, and stepmother to his three lovely daughters. And we want to remind you not to be an evil stepmother because we all know what happens then. <laughs> so what do you say, Kathleen? And she she turned to me and she said very softly, yes. And I said, tell him. <laughs> and she turned to the colonel and said, yes. And everybody in the place cheered. And Graham was overhead videotaping it. No. And, uh, oh, no. It's Graham video. Years ago. Years ago. And also the, place the, the club's gone. I mean, no, no one's going to care. And he's videotaping it. Uh-huh. And Graham shouts down. It would have sucked if she said no. <laughs> yeah, it really would have sucked. Yes. Um, As a matter of fact, Peter, uh, Emily and I are off to meet the man who was the colonel. We're going to see Car- Carl and Don. Some minutes our- later, a guy comes over to me and he says, I know, a guy comes over to me and he says, I'm the colonel. And I went, what? He says, my name is Carl Oxstad and I operated and voiced the colonel i just post your fiance <laughs> please give him please give him my regards so i sure will i sure will we're gonna have a, a driveway cocktail party it's what a driveway cocktail party social oh. distancing cocktail party in his there driveway is. when is when is the park opening no well, comment <laughs> uh they think around the 11th or 15th uh and um equity uh shows a little bit later they're still in negotiations. Okay. Well, look, Broadway shut down for the rest of the Until year. Until January. January. Yeah, it's, it's done. Yeah, I saw that. I no, saw that Broadway's. No trains. Yeah. So they're being they're being really strict about that. Are you guys are you guys staying healthy? I mean, my understanding is yep. that we're back up. We're we're doing well. We're staying healthy. Uh, child Emily is doing well. Caroline's looking good. I saw her walking back there. And, yep. Uh, Hi. Hi, but well, we're we're going to take off. Uh, we just wanted to pop in and tell you that we love you and that we miss you and we hope you're doing well. Great seeing you in regards to Carl and Norm. See you Bye. later. All right. Okay, so we're all friends here. The whole- <laughs> yeah, that's about to say, ladies and gentlemen. I, I wanted to give that uh, treat to them because they haven't spoken. You gotta understand. You folks gotta understand. Like David's come down to my part of the world, Orlando. White on a religious schedule. So I I take Disney for granted because this is my backyard and sometimes my job. And for them, though, this is 
this is their what at least twice to three times a year. So yeah, well, not this year we're not. Yeah, <laughs> but so the Hulk so right. comes in and he wants and he says, "Would you be interested in writing the Hulk?" And I said, and I wasn't reading the book at the time, and I said, "Well, I don't know. I mean, I think dialogue is my strength, and I really don't know what I can do with a character who basically has a book." vocabulary of about eight words and he said oh no 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 that's not the Hulk now and I went what do you mean he said Al Milgram made him gray I said what he said it restored him to his original there we are Mm -hmm. Uh, he's restored him to his original incarnation and so he's gray and he's intelligent just as it was in the original Hulk, which is why it always breaks me up nowadays when people say to me, what made you change the Hulk back to gray? And the answer is nothing. Al Milgram did that. And Bob's, and I said, he said, Rick Jones is now the Hulk, the green Hulk. That's right. And I went, well, that's stupid. You know, Rick Jones should be like the one normal guy in the entire Marvel Universe. This, of course, was years before A-Bomb. Yeah. But um, at any rate, I said, well, if I come on the book, the first thing I'm going to do is get rid of Rick Jones being the Hulk and focus on Gray Hulk. And he said, oh, that's fine. You can do whatever you want. And I said, aren't you worried that you're going to get blowback from editorial? I mean, I said, let's be honest, you know, they, nobody wanted me on Spider-Man. Aren't you worried about getting the same kind of pushback? And Bob said, no, there's not going to be any problem at all. Nobody wants to write the Hulk. I went, what do you mean nobody wants to write the Hulk? And Bob said, I have gone to every available writer. No one wants to write the book. I've even gone to every editor who writes on the side. No editor wants to write it. I have absolutely no one to write the book. If you don't write it, I'm going to have to write it. And I don't want to write it. Mm. And I went, well, what's what's wrong with having Al continuing to write it? And he said, well, I'm not really thrilled with the storyline in which Al wants to take it. And I said, what's the problem? And he said, well, Al wants to do a series of stories that have a framework in which there are there one-off stories in which the Rick Jones Hulk goes through some sort of adventure in which he winds up learning something, and there's a moral at the end of every episode. Kind of like early episodes of South Park. Yeah. Before South Park. Or the original Hulk TV series. Or the original Hulk TV yeah. He says, and the framing device is going to be that there is this talking mule Speaking with a sentient acre of grass. And they're the ones who are having the conversation about the Hulk. And the names of the characters are Wiseacre and Smartass. And I'm sitting there going, you're kidding. And he says, no, that's what Al wants to do. And I said, I think I see the problem here. I mean, Al, Al tended to think, Outside of the box, way outside of the box, like, you know, back in the manufacturer on the factory floor setting. And I said, yeah, I think I see the problem here. Yeah. there. And so I said, OK, I will come up with a storyline and I'll write the book for six issues. Yeah. Years later. <laughs> 
about so, to say. Who knew? The fact that you took that gig that nobody wanted and you you turned it into I, I don't know where it has settled at, but the whole point of the matter is is that everybody who was cool was reading Hulk. <laughs> that that's, well, that's really what it was. 